Welcome to season six of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Stefano Bini. This season features eight sessions from COVID-19, the orthopedic recovery, a virtual summit powered by DocSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference, San Francisco. It was streamed live on May 29th, 2020. The summit was a global conversation on the challenges of resuming patient care in the context of an uncertain future and an ongoing pandemic. Let's join over 1,000 registrants from around the world and the world-class speakers DocSF is known for on the DocSF virtual stage. Welcome to session six of COVID-19, the orthopedic recovery, powered by DocSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco, in partnership with the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery and the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of California, San Francisco. Also joined by the American Telemedicine Association, as you probably just heard, as well as the OREF. I'd also like to mention that uh, a special thank you to our DocSF sponsors. This is our second virtual event, and they were thoughtful enough to join us. Zimmer Biomet, Johnson Johnson, Depew, and Modernizing Medicine have all joined us and providing symposia at the end of the conference that you may want to stick around for. They can look very interesting, and their innovative solutions uh, during this time of recovery are very useful. So look forward to joining that. For the time being, now, now we're at the uh, session six. This is the healthcare economy and what's left of it. And uh, what to expect if unemployment does reach 20% or higher. We're joined by Dr. Kevin Bozik, who is the uh, professor and chair of surgery and perioperative care at the Dell Medical School at the University of Texas in Austin. And Kevin's an old friend and, and very knowledgeable about this area. I want to thank you for coming. And you're going to do us a favor also introducing your other guest, which is Jamie Robinson. All right, Steph. Well, thank you for including us in another great Doc SF conference. I'm excited to be here with my colleague, Jamie Robinson, and really appreciate the comments and the perspectives that have been shared already on the conference today. So my colleague and co-host here for this session is Jamie Robinson. I think you'll find that he's eminently qualified on this topic. Jamie's a professor of health economics, University of California, Berkeley, and has a research and teaching focus on clinical innovation and the specialties and facilities that employ them. He has a long-standing interest in orthopedic surgery and has worked with CalPERS on their reference pricing initiative and worked with a number of different organizations on bundled payment initiatives related to orthopedic surgery. So we look forward to hearing his perspective. So uh, Stefano asked us to, to touch a little bit on what's going on in both the U.S. and the global economies in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So let me just start with a question, Jamie, that's on everyone's mind, and that's the economic recovery. So Maybe you could start by telling us what the current state of the U.S. and global economy is coming out of this pandemic. First of all, thank you for inviting me to join. It's great to uh, participate and to uh, we can all speculate together. Anybody that knows the future should rearrange his stock portfolio and buy an island in the Caribbean. So uh, the I think the best guesses are that for the U.S., over there we're expecting uh, two to three percent GDP growth this year, and now they're expecting maybe a 3 to 5% GDP decline. That's called a recession. And the real question is what's going to, what's going to be the shape of the recovery? And the way that economists talk about this is that you can either have a, a V-shaped recovery, an L-shaped recovery, or a U-shaped recovery. And I'll say, what, what is each of those? And then we'll speculate as to where we're going. A V-shaped recovery is fast down, fast up. 
And some recessions are like that. They bounce back very fast. And that's great. That's clearly what uh, everyone would love to see. The uh, president's reelection campaign is predicated on that. And uh, that assumes that we get a a vaccine up and effective and out there this fall. So if you believe that that's going to happen, you believe in a V-shaped. The economy was very strong before COVID. Remember last year, past few years, it's been strong, full employment, rising wages, booming stock market. So it's good foundation. And if you look at the stock market today, you see that despite the uh, very low earnings, the companies are massive layoffs, unprecedented layoffs, and a wave of bankruptcies coming our way. Still, the stock market is booming away. And so the investors who are all investing our pension funds for us, by the way, uh, think that we're going to have some kind of a V-shape. All right. So that's the V. What about the L? That's the negative, the pessimistic. The pessimistic um, version is, is that this thing grinds on and on for years. And what would be the driver of that? That would be that we essentially don't get a vaccine and we don't get a really, a really good cocktail of drugs. And so that what we, what we, social distancing is really the only tool in the kit. And so we distance, we let up a little bit like we're doing right now. Then we get a second wave of infections. We tighten back down, things calm down a bit. We lighten up, we get the third wave of infections and we just cycle through that until we move towards uh, some form of you know, herd immunity, which might be in the uh, 50, 60, 70% having been infected. Rates now are in the single digits, okay? They've been having outside of New York and a few places, it's been low, still low, all things considered. So that's a grim because there's a lot of businesses that are holding on right now, but that they can't hold on for years like this. And so the, the, the layoffs the, and also the ability of the federal government to just pour money into the economy is not infinite. The way I view it, the image of what's going on in terms of the recovery uh, policy of the government is you've got a patient on the OR, the patient is hemorrhaging blood and you're transfusing blood. So you're putting it into the patient's arm. It's pouring out of the rest of the patient. It's just going right through. If you didn't pour it in, the patient would be worse off. Okay, what about the U-shape? U-shape, obviously, kind of in the middle. I personally am a, probably a U-shaper uh, in the sense that I think a V-shape, uh, we're just not going to get that kind of a vaccine that fast. I do note that all the senior executives of Moderna, the leading vaccine company, have all sold their stock. I mean, that is not an optimistic sign. And uh, But on the other hand, the notion that we're going to be in an L-shape and be dragging on this thing here in the United States for 10 years, also a little different. The, really, the question is going to be is, this is going to uh, accelerate other kinds of deeper transformations that were going on in the economy, particularly automation and artificial intelligence. And we see it in telemedicine, but it's everywhere. And that is going to clearly have adverse job implications in the short term, positive ones in the long term. But in the short term, it could, those two together, the social distancing plus just the technological obsolescence of a lot of people's jobs could be a problem. So, Jimmy, let me pick up on a topic that you just mentioned, which is a federal policy in response to the pandemic. So, obviously, I think there was widespread agreement that something needed to be done and someone needed to prop up the economy during the short term. 
What are the downstream consequences of spending of the U.S. government spending two to three trillion dollars that we don't have on on this short term cure? And we understand that you know without it, it would have been much worse. But when are we going to experience the downstream consequences, and what might those be? Well, the, uh, this is all borrowed money, and borrowed money has to get paid back. So that's the main thing. Now, everyone in America loves deficits. We all love deficits. The Republicans just cut taxes la- you know, a couple of years ago, ma- massive deficits. Everybody loved it. Democrats love to spend money. So it's, it's going to be an interesting. I do believe that somehow we're go- this is going to have to be repaid by taxes. And there's a couple of bad choices with taxes. There's taxes on individuals, income tax. And that dampens consumer spending. Consumer spending accounts for 70% of GDP. And uh, the right, right now, we're giving money to people to go, please spend your money taxing them. Or you put taxes on business, corporate tax. And then that, of course, encourages them to uh, shift to lower tax parts of the world. So none of these are very attractive. But... The real way to do it is to grow. If the economy grows, then it's easier to pay those taxes. And what we really hope is that we don't get high rates of interest because what's keeping the whole federal economy going, the budget, is that we have a lot of debt, but we're paying almost no interest on it. And so that's great. It's actually a good time to borrow. But if the interest rates rise, and that we're getting pretty much into speculating about international monetary flows at that point, which we don't need to do. So, so let me just pick up on that theme as well. So we have international participants on the call. What is the um, sort of how has the U.S. economy responded vis-a-vis other economies, Europe, Asia, and what can we learn from those that came before us in terms of the economic response and recovery? Well, the only one that really came before us in a real effective way is China, and uh, China has been generally a very well-run economy. I mean, if you don't. If you don't worry about democracy and individual rights, you can get stuff happening. And so they've, you know, they're back to work and they're producing. They're able to uh, be use their uh, productivity to offer help to Italy and to lots of countries and uh, drugs and personal protective equipment and stuff like that, as well as money. So they're the with our president kind of becoming an anti-globalist. China is taking up taking up the position wants to be the new world leader. That's clear. And we don't. And so they're all happy about that. We're all happy about that, I guess. I think that Europe, the basis of the basics of the U.S. economy are strong, partly because of technology. We do have our our bank, our financial system is in pretty good shape. We've got really pulled out of all the recession of 10 years ago. The banks, balance sheets look strong, which is really important in this. And so the basics are good. But if we have the stop, start, stop, start um, thing that we have to do over the next several years because we don't lack anything better, it's going to be a problem. And what about a lot's been written about the, the government response in Europe, the sort of paycheck protection philosophy versus the U.S. response? And, and what do you make of that and how might that impact the recovery? Well, I think there's different ways of, of putting money into the system and um, America basically believes in the trickle down, give the money to the rich people and it'll end up trickling down to the poor people and the Europeans are a little bit more, give it to the working people and it'll per- percolate up. Whether they're different or not, the, I, I, I just, the, the big fear for the European economy is not the short-term macroeconomic, let's restart, let's get people back to, you know, so they can go out and get a dinner in a restaurant type stuff. 
it's like, okay, once that starts, once you've gotten there, what's the, what's the engine? What's the real, where's the innovation? Where's the, the entrepreneurship to the, for the, uh, the industries of the future? And uh, so Brexit has done huge harm to the European economy and will continue to. And this, the stresses of COVID have torn, you know, at the fabric of Europe. And so I am a, I'm a big supporter of Europe because it's along with North America, it's the strongest place for democracy, individual rights in the world. So, but I fear a little bit uh, that they will have, that even if they have a short-term recovery, what's going to be the longer-term liftoff for Europe? One last question on this topic, and then we'll shift gears to talk more about the healthcare economy. Um, which sectors of our uh, economy in the U.S. have been hit the hardest and which ones have been spared or had the least impact? Well, clearly the ones hit immediately are the ones which involve face-to-face, and that is the whole hospitality industry, restaurants and all that, and travel, which is a big industry, airlines, hotels, rental car companies, all of that, the, and then all the services that feed into that. All the downstream, the suppliers, when you think of, let's say, for example, the fishing industry. I, we're in San Francisco here. I'm in San Francisco here. And we, of course, have the fishing industry. Fishermen are hurting. Why? Because they sell 70% of fish is sold and consumed through restaurants. So they are hurting. Because they're a downstream supplier. They are now trying to do basically farmer's market type stuff, direct to consumers. Consumers are cooking more fish, which is good, but it's no way is it picking up the slack of the, the restaurant industry. The parts of the industry that are the economy that are doing well, of course, are those parts which can be done virtually. This is the whole tech industry and all of the uh, basically it's the it's the, the COVID clearly is affecting the working class much more severely than the professional class because of the ability of people like you and me to keep our jobs, keep working, whereas people who their jobs involved uh, being outside and interacting with people are more adversely affected. Where we see, need to see bounce back is in construction, very important, and agriculture. We've still got problems getting enough ag labor uh, going out there. So anyway, those are, those are parts of it. Great. Well, uh, um, we're going to shift gears to a different topic, but I would ask that any of the participants who have questions on the, uh, the, the macroeconomic impact and the recovery, please go ahead and put those in the chat. So I want to shift gears and talk about a different topic, and that's employment and insurance. So first of all, how has the pandemic impacted the percentage of Americans who are insured versus uninsured and with the insured se- within the insured sector, those who are insured uh, through their employer versus the government? Well, the first thing is that the employment effect is a severe, but it's also highly localized, is variable. Here in the, the great state of California, the uh, well, nationally, unemployment rate is 15%, highest since uh, the 30s. In uh, California, it's 20%. In Los Angeles, it's 25%. So you just see, and, and this regional regional effects. The, also, the, this is going to move around because we know that the infection is moving around. Now that it's, it's coming down in some of the places, it's with hotspots, and it's bubbling up in mid-sized towns in Georgia, in South Dakota, and places the, the, from the point of view, we're moving towards talking about the impact on healthcare. It's really about health insurance. The good news is that in the short term, people losing their jobs, uh, about two thirds of them are retaining their employment based coverage, partly because the government is subsidizing jobs and partly because employers can remember how hard it was to attract labor only four months ago. In January, we had a very tight labor market. And so they are, are furloughing people, but retaining paying their health insurance, which is great. For those that do lose their health insurance, we have options. 
thanks to the Affordable Care Act, we have the health insurance exchanges. They are growing enrollment. Uh, and we have better expanded eligibility for Medicaid. Now, obviously, this is regional as well. Uh, in the more conservative states, many of them did not expand Medicaid. And so the laid-off workers, realistically, to be um, on Medicaid, you have to be a single mom or disabled, basically. And they also have been uh, fairly hostile to the exchanges, and they haven't been pushing the exchanges, whereas in more liberal states, they built more of that safety net. So insurance is being much less affected than is employment. Also, by the way, Medicare is not directly affected, and for orthopedics, certain parts of orthopedic surgery is heavily about Medicare patients, and so no change there directly. So I would say in the the immediate term, we're lucky. The insurance system is kind of holding together. If we have an L-shaped recovery, you'll see more and more loss of employment-based insurance. And and then that could lead to a more of a tipping point where the exchanges, instead of being the residual for people who don't get employment-based insurance, it's always like employment-based insurance could be more the residual and a, a massive enrollment in these exchanges. Uh, on that point about Medicare, so I've heard that said before. So in, in, in prior recessions, as the economic conditions put pressure on entitlement programs like Medicare, like Social Security, and caused debate uh, in Washington around the uh, how to fund those programs, do you not see this 2 to $3 trillion addition to our, our deficit somehow impacting entitlement programs down the road? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Everything's going to be impacted. And you know, everybody that gets public dollars is impacted by the public budget. I mean, already at the University of California, you know, there's, you know, they're just announcing all kinds of cuts. And so it's definitely, so how does, how's it going to play out for Medicare? Medicare is obviously a, a very politically popular program. And the way that politics and Medicare work out is that the politicians never want to directly touch the beneficiaries. They don't, the beneficiaries are the ones that vote. And so if they've got a problem financially, they take a swing at the providers. And that's the first and biggest chunk of providers is the hospital sector. That's number one. Number two comes uh, the pharmaceutical companies. After that come the physicians and then everybody else. And so uh, the easiest way for them to deal with it, to squeeze those sectors is to simply not increase payments. It's always easier to not increase than it is to decrease that's very painful in an inflationary time. If we've got no inflation for a while, they weren't plan- they weren't going to be in- increasing those payments anyway. So I don't know, but um, it's still not the same as what you see in the if people lose their insurance altogether, or if people well, I get to this in the other types of insurance if they really move to insurance designs with with a lot of consumer caution. So do you see, well, let me ask you then, so that's on the, on the public side, how have the commercial or private payers been faring through this? I think there's a presumption that, you know, people were avoiding healthcare and therefore their spending, their, their medical loss ratios must have decreased considerably uh, during this time. But how are they, how are the, the publicly held uh, private insurers faring? They're doing great. They're great. It's just, it's just absolutely true. They, uh, their premiums were set last year based on certain expectations and, then suddenly people stopped going into the doctor or to the hospital. And uh, they actually, are, of course, they're paying for COVID care. But outside of New York, there just hasn't been that much of it. So they're, they're doing very well, thank you. 
They are worried about what's going to happen next year. They're worried about a couple things on the next year. First of all, will there be a big bounce back of people flooding back in in the fall and in the next year wanting the care that they've deferred? And how much of it is deferred and how much is is never? You know, when's it coming back now, later, never? They have to they have to predict that. And they're also uh, worried about uh, pricing from the providers because the providers are hurting very bad right now, as you know. Volume is way down. And so the providers, it's very hard to imagine that they're going to come up with any better idea than let's consolidate further. Let's have hospitals employ any remaining non-employed doctors. Let's do a bunch of mergers. And then let's raise prices against the commercial carriers. They can't raise prices against Medicare and Medicaid effectively. So that, that could happen. Insurers have to try to figure that out. Do you see? Do you foresee a decrease in healthcare spending per capita and healthcare spending as a percentage of GDP in the U.S. Given that you just mentioned GDP is expected to decline as well, um, as a percentage of GDP, healthcare is probably going to rise. It's projections. It's, it's right now. It's been around seventeen and a half percent, somewhere in that of GDP fluctuates a little bit. Some projections that go up to around twenty-one percent, mainly because of the denominator. In terms of the numerator or spending per capita. I think it's going to go down. That's If you think about what's happened over the past decade, 10 years ago, we had the big recession. And what happened in, from healthcare, how the insurance? Well, that next 10 years, there was this huge shift of benefit to, you know, enrollment into high deductible health plans that really surged during that period. Uh, employers, you know, they're not that creative. They thought, gee whiz, I've got a deductible to 250. Why don't I just raise it to 1,000? Oh, why don't I raise it to 3,000? I mean, that's, that's kind of like the level. That they're talking about. And so that's what they did. And then consumers look at that and they don't feel all empowered and skin in the game. They just feel like, because most Americans don't have 500 bucks in their savings account. So they, they use less care. And so we've had a relatively slow growth in the volume of care per capita over the past decade. We have seen increases in prices because the providers have been smart and they've consolidated and they monopoly power and all that. So uh, we can see more of that. We could see more of that. We use people who have thin, what we call thin insurance, they can decide that they're not going to pay their deductible. And that does hit orthopedics because you've got a lot of procedures that will drive the patient right to their deductible before they get to the elevator. Okay. And so you're going to have a whole lot of people saying to themselves, yeah, my knee really hurts. But is this where I want to put $3,000 of my deductible right now? And ditto for spine, especially for spine. So that is going to, I feel, if I wasn't trying to figure out, prognosticate orthopedic volumes, I would uh, be looking at that. So you'd be predicting a decrease in demand because of the out-of-pocket responsibility of the insured? Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a bounce back. There's a lot of deferred care that is going to bounce back. So when patients feel it's safe to come in and doctors feel it's safe to operate again on schedulable cases, non-emergency schedulable cases, that's going to come back. Um, But the trend line um, is, is, and I'm speculating, but this just can't be good. This cannot be good for blinds. Yeah. And so let me just ask one final question on that. And then um, I'll ask Stefano if we leave some time for, for questions. But 
So again, back to employers. So a lot of the shift in pressure from both the government payers and the employers towards value, where orthopedic surgery has really been at the forefront and been first really first movers in that space, both in terms of delivery model and the payment model. A lot of that pressure came from the perception that healthcare spending per capita was too high and employers were feeling pressure that they were spending too much on healthcare uh, and it was an easy place to cut. So you've told us that you think healthcare spending per capita is going to be going down. So maybe less of a spotlight on that in the short term, but you've also told us that employers are really hurting and really struggling. Do you think that increases or decreases pressure on healthcare and transitions to alternative payment models and other, uh, other systems for delivering care? I think that the, the pressure is going to continue because the government, Medicare and uh, the private employers and insurers, they're all feeling stressed. I mean, private insurers have a short-term boost, but basically they're going to be stressed. And so they're going to be looking for things that moderate the trend. I think that from it's incumbent on the profession and uh, I appreciate you, you know, you're a leader in this and there's others in the orthopedic surgery that are leaders in this to say to the to the profession, listen, we have to change our way of doing things and we've got to be able to come to the buyer and say, listen, I don't deliver my little procedure. I'm part of a group that delivers musculoskeletal care and I'm willing to stand by that. I'm willing to, I'll measure quality. You can measure quality, whatever. And we're going to have some sort of bundle payment and we will be accountable for the cost of that. And because when you look, when you think about the, let's go back to, you know, you and I have worked a lot again on reference pricing. Reference pricing came right out of the recession 10 years ago. State of California, basically bankrupt, turned around to the state employees program and said, spend less. State program turned to the consultants. The consultants said, high deductible. The labor union said, no. Okay. So they said, what else can we do? And so they said, let's look, at, let's look at our data. And they found this incredible variability in the prices charged by hospitals for orthopedic surgical procedures. And so they said, okay, we're going to set this thing up so that the patients that pick the, the places charging less than 30000 it's going to be a, a generous. And if they pay a place that charges more than $30,000, they will pay the entire difference between 30000 and whatever that number is. And gee whiz, patients, once they started spending their own money, they moved. And the doctors did too. The doctor, this, this didn't apply to doctors because the doctors were all charging just the fee schedule. They weren't getting any of this a big money out of the hospitals. So it really worked. But it's very limited because that was just for the procedure. What the buyers really wants to say, we want to do that, but we want to do it across what Michael Porter at Harvard, who you work with, calls these integrated practice units. Really, you know, call it surgical Units that include the procedure, the pre-op, the post-op, physical therapy, and of course, in the in the current era, we're all going to um, a lot of that stuff is going to be virtual because you can do a lot of good things, e-visits and other things for the pre-op and the post-op monitoring. So I think it's an opportunity, and I think that, but it is going to have to be something that saves money. You know, it's quality, improving quality is what gets the doctors engaged. Saving money is what gets the buyers engaged. And on that note, and we're going to shift back to Steph here in a second, is, you know, I think so what you're telling us is this does create an opportunity for innovation from our profession as we've been doing all along since that that last recession. And we've really been 
leaders through our, our co-sponsor of this of this conference, the AAOS, in the, m- making the transition to value. And so it sounds like your belief is that we may have an even additional opportunities for innovation coming out of this pandemic. Yeah, so, I just, to, just let me say something just on yeah. that. Everyone's talking about, okay, one of the big deals about the, the epidemic is it's going to really be a tipping point for virtual care, you know, telemedicine, which, which it is. But telemedicine is, and which is great, it's only a bit of what of what the real expense of healthcare and the real quality. And so you guys are you, you guys are where the you know the frankly the dollars flow. And so putting that together, having virtual be part of it, but using this as a tipping point. I'm hoping I hope that the COVID epidemic will be a tipping point for value based orthopedics and you know, value based uh, musculoskeletal care generally. But it's up to to the profession to do it. And like I say, you do it. Or it shall be done to you. Jamie famously said to me one time, healthcare reform will either happen by doctors or to doctors. And so it sounds like there's an opportunity to, for it to happen by doctors. So I'm going to turn it back over to, to Steph and he'll, I'm sure, get to some questions. And I have some additional questions if there's time, but I'd like to hear from others. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much, you guys. I, we could have gone on forever. But thanks for giving us that. We do have seven questions. I just ask them as they're written. And uh, some of, there's a little bit of repetition from what you've already said. So the first one, uh, Dr. Cummins, how do you think COVID-19 will affect medical research funding? I think you've sort of alluded to the impact of debt on healthcare spending by government. When you want to address that? Well, what I hear in the world of the funding agents I do is if you don't have the word COVID-19 in the title of your research proposal, you are not going to get funded. So if you're, if you're researching COVID, you're good. If you're researching anything else, we're starting the lean years. That's been our experience as well in both health services research as well as translational research that all of the funding, not not most of it, all of it is being diverted to COVID-related research. Fascinating. From Richard Capra, what is the long-term situation between insurers and hospitals and what will change? I think you hinted at it, but it just goes straight to the heart of the matter. Do you think there'll be a change in the way insurers and hospitals partner in the delivery of healthcare? Well, I would like to think so. And I know that the best provider system, I think, in this current situation is is the Kaiser Permanente. I've been doing a, a paper with Kaiser on, on their experience, and they because the, the Kaiser Health Plan stands with the Kaiser hospitals and the Permanente doctors. They're not, you know, they're not cutting them off. So uh, they are able to do all this re-engineering of care, and uh, they're and that's what, you know, they have to, they're, you know, they've got stresses too. They've, they've got, they have to worry about membership, losing their insurance, and you know, they've, got, they've got issues to do. But um, I found it really unfortunate that when, like, for example, United Healthcare, they're about to break the law and violating the medical loss ratio of the Affordable Care Act because no patients were getting care. So they were in violation of the MLR. Boom. What did they do? The principle of the MLR is the money needs to go to the doctors and the hospitals. But they didn't give any money to doctors and hospitals. They gave it to employers in the future pay down of their premium. So that gets them business going forward. Nothing wrong with that. But I mean, it, it didn't help the doctors and the hospitals who are bleeding right now because they're empty. They're empty. That's the problem. So we really want the hospitals, I mean, the insurers should take, and I don't know how to do this in the environment that we're at, some accountability for their network core. They should have their their best providers, ideally the ones that were integrated, as we were talking earlier, into these integrated practice units and we're taking accountability for quality and cost. Keep them whole. 
So along the same lines, because the insurers having significant amount of the sitting on a lot of cash, and you did guys both talked about one reason why they're probably wanting to keep that cash because they're concerned about that care coming back down the road. But the question from Nico here is, do you think payers will take that money to vertically integrate care and acquire distressed care delivery assets? You, you see that this financial structure will sh- cause a shift of insurers going into the delivery side. I think that there's, there's some of that just going on anyway. Most most obviously, uh, United Health Group, through its Optum Care division, uh, has several thousand uh, physicians who are full time employed members of groups that are owned by Optum Care. I mean, there's all these legal things, so they're not actually working for Optum Care. There's corporate practice and all this kind of stuff, but they're very aligned with that. And it is working, to my knowledge, quite well. It's a very big deal here in California, in Southern California. Uh, Some of the most famous medical groups are now affiliated with Optum. And you see some elements of that. You see up here, uh, Blue Shield, Anthem, making investments. I think a lot of it is actually a fear of hospital consolidation. It's really what's going on. And uh, they would uh, would like to keep alive physician entities which are not hospital-centric so that they can do the things like favor ambulatory surgery over a hospital-based outpatient, you know, the, the usual kinds of things. Thank you. One more question. You may have sort of answered it, but let me, it's, it's come up, so let me just bring it back. And the probability of inflation impacting Medicare costs, this is phrase is costs as opposed to premiums, but um, you probably think of it both ways. Yeah, well, that, first of all, we don't know whether we've been waiting for inflation for several years now. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Uh, this is like uh, interest rates are, uh, they range between zero and negative. It's really unbelievable. It's amazing, historic. Um, if those interest rates go up, the federal government is in very bad shape because it then has to divert money from Medicare, from the military, et cetera, to debt financing, debt servicing. And so uh, we certainly hope that we somehow collectively pay down a bunch of our debt before the interest rates go up. <laughs> With that hopeful thought. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and we're getting uh, we're getting into the last 60 seconds. Uh, Kevin, you said you had a couple of questions you wanted to ask. I'm going to give you the last one. No, I'll just, I'll just say that, you know, I think this has been a, a great session. I think that what we've heard is that the a lot of these uh, entities are really interrelated and intertwined. And so um, whatever we see, we, we, we see that healthcare was likely to be a bellwether for the rest of the economy. Uh, I'm really proud and excited that orthopedic surgery with uh, Stefano's leadership and the AAOS is, is really trying to be proactive about driving forward with solutions. And I'm, I'm really encouraged and optimistic that we will um, come out of this better than we were before. And so thanks again for including us and, and thanks for all the, the questions that came uh, from the audience and uh, look forward to uh, the rest of the conference. Thank you, sir. Thank you both. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. And uh, we will move on to the next session and uh, we'll have a usual five minute break and I look forward to seeing you there. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. We aim to provide our global audience with practical and actionable knowledge for modernizing the way they deliver care to the orthopedic patient. If you like the podcast, please rate us on your favorite player or tell a friend. It only takes a minute and it makes a huge difference to us. 
Many thanks to our friends at Outcomes Rocket, the Health Podcast Network, and our producer, Dr. Sheila Toro, for their work on this season. Be well, stay safe. See you next time on the Digital Orthopedics Podcast.